Welcome to Omalort, Chicago history you never learned in school. I'm joined by Jeff Barrett. How are you doing? Great. Happy to learn and also happy to not be drinking Malort during this uh, experience. Are you aware of Malort? Yeah, I actually made people drink it during my wedding. I I made my family. I'll try it last week at a reunion. Yeah, no, it wasn't good. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a Serbian plum brandy called Slivovitz, which is similar in other circles in the Midwest, where it's basically, it's an initiation. It, exactly. I actually had somebody yesterday ask me, what's Malort? And I just said to the bartender, just give her a sip. I can't explain this. You cannot properly distill, pun intended, or explain a botanical liquor. Like, that's right. just not something that you can even begin to imagine if you have not experienced it. But once... And you can never not know. No, it will stick with you forever. Yeah. All right. And I just want to let everybody know, I actually haven't done this before. I've never actually set up how I know my co-host. Jeff and I have known each other for over a decade now. And while he's younger than me, we grew up in the same county in Michigan. We disavow the same anti-Semitic hot dog stand in the next county over. And we align around our sense of humor. And most importantly, we're both Dutch. Yep. Yep. Midwestern folks have always say, hey, I got 75% off something. Exactly. I had some people yesterday who were from the Netherlands as passengers. And they're just like, you have a Dutch humor. And I'm like, yeah. And yeah, this cheap. is why right now I go to Pistons games because they're all $14 lower bowl seats since they've lost 21 in a row. I, mean, I could get really cheap tickets to the Bears games right now. I mean, I, Fields has been good. Two, I think they've won two in a row now. Yeah. Uh, I haven't been playoff eligible when you're five and eight. Right. I have not paid a lot of attention because I usually work, but yeah. Have you been paying attention to MAGA's response to Taylor Swift or the resurgence of Pizzagate? Definitely the resurgence of Pizzagate because everything that's old becomes new again in internet culture, which is fascinating to me. Nobody has stormed that same uh, pizza place in a while. Uh, Doesn't have a basement, just to be clear. Uh, but no, not the mega response to Taylor. Although I was just listening to the daily before I got on talking all about the year of Taylor Swift's the inevitability of content, right? If you become super popular, some entity or some place is going to get mad at you at some point. We live in a world now where like conservatives have what kind of Chick-fil-A. Yeah. Well, she, comes. she's 34 years old, very popular and single and getting people to vote. So they, you can, it's literally like disgusting conversations. Does she even have any eggs left? Hey. Yeah. The, inter- the internet's a kind place. Yeah. And her boyfriend, Travis Kelsey, also gets ripped because he did a uh, commercial for the vaccine. Yeah, they're a side. Probably. I'm <laughs> just saying that's what's being said on the internet. It's a- you know what? Listen, I love, love. I just, I love, <laughs> and I hope the best for people. History and celebrity culture will tell you that 95% of those things don't work out. The PR person in me, which we did not disclose, which is just what I do for a living, will tell me that, yeah, some things are pretty convenient. Also, when you are marketing a movie that you're not going through a studio with, it'd probably behoove you to find different ways of self-promotion, like being on NFL broadcasts in front of a completely different audience. That said, I am wishing them the best. 
and I hope everything works out. I hope so too. But I just wanted to point out that there is a huge misogynistic response to Taylor Swift and a resurgence yeah. of Pizzagate. And those two things are relative for our journey today. Ooh, you, this is a good setup. Yes, I try. So we're going to talk about prostitution in the early 1900s Chicago. Hell yeah. And we're going to embark in a journey crazier than a trip to Epstein Island. Hell no. I'm going to start off a little bit of context. Chicago's vice district at this time was called the Levy, and it offered more depravity, crime, and grift than Capitol Hill. Various mayors, for their own motivations, employed what was known as the segregation method. So the prevailing thought was that degeneracy was going to happen, but keep it contained. Mm. And this was an unusual, even Muskegon had the vice district. Just Chicago had to do it extra Chicago. They did a vice report in 1910. And according to this report, there were 1,020 houses of ill repute and 5,000 full-time prostitutes in Chicago. All technically illegal at the time. All technically illegal. And it's also worth noting, this number does not include streetwalkers or part-timers. Okay. This is just straight-up brothels. Just wide open, sign on the door, not even really trying to hide it. Oh, we'll get to how little they try to hide it. So conservative estimates say that it was, at the time, a $16 million a year industry in Chicago, of which no one was paying taxes, by the way. And... And then if you pay attention, as we talked about, like the far right talking points, they say right now we are more degenerate than ever. And I just want to point out that simply isn't true. At least in Chicago, the early 1900s was more transparently criminal by comparison. The Wild West is more criminal and depraved than it's a it's an interesting kind of segue into, and I don't mean to derail, but it's we just have more ability to. There's a benefit and a negative to the fact that we can video anything. We have eyes on everything. We can see everything. But yes, when it comes to when it comes to, are we depraved? Also, just the United States in general compared to the rest of like Europe and other places, they're, they're like, oh, oh, that's cute, U.S. Okay. Yeah, that yeah, that's very interesting. I was listening to a podcast about the lady in Ohio, the anti-marijuana lady. And it was like, if we just taught, like we somebody said the line, if we didn't have a drinking age that was 90 and just taught people to do things responsibly, we wouldn't have this this weird pendulum where kids leave home and they go nuts. Yeah, we basically have our own version of Rumspringer, right? Yeah. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, too, how John Boehner left house to become the marijuana lord of Ohio. Because I know. the money was there. Well, sad and true. For the longest time, this becomes one other version of things that were put in place to mass incarcerate a certain group of people since the mid-1860s. 
And then one day everybody woke up and they're like, wow, this isn't working. I guess it's fine. And now let's give a bunch of licenses to people we know and own this business. And it's a huge moneymaker, much like prostitution. Uh, love a good moneymaker that doesn't have to pay taxes, Alyssa. I actually know. I know. Yes, that's the whole purpose of the Omalort podcast is history just repeats itself. The concept of the first 10. And so I want to I write three books for this episode. And I'm going to say up front that throughout this subject are entire other episodes about corruption and prostitution and pimps and all of that and human rights stuff. And I'll touch on it when appropriate for the story, but there's a whole other episode or two on those topics. I'm not ignoring them. I'm aware of them. I'm thinking about them. But for the sake of storytelling, I'm going to focus on one one brothel in specific. Move over, Texas. We are focusing on what was considered to be the best whorehouse in the world. Okay. This is the story of Mina and Ada Everly, the most famous madams you have never heard of. Their their origin story, like so many Chicagoans of this era, it's challenging to separate the fact from fiction. Everyone was an Anna Delvey or an Elizabeth Holmes back then. And it's worth mentioning, got money from men, except for these two actually had a product. Chicago Tribune sums their origin up as such. With that, Mina and her older sister, Ada, opened what would become the first little bordello in Chicago and, for a time, one of the best known in the world. Mina and Ada Everly, then 21 and 23, took their name from their grandmother's habit of signing her letters, Everly Yours. Raised in a prosperous Southern family, the sisters fled bad marriages to become touring actresses and ended up in Chicago after running a Bengino in Omaha during the Trans-Mississippi Exposition. So, by the most recent account that I've read about them, they were actually 10 years older than they said they were, so they would have been 31 and 33 at the time. Mm. They may have come from a privileged background. They may not. They may have had abusive husbands. They may have not. You, you, you see what I mean? Narrative narrative plays well in everything. And also, we're talking about 100 years ago, so we don't. It's very hard to have hard facts and hard data on that. Yes. Also, World's Fairs were magnets for the underworld. That cannot be overstated enough how many world's fairs just attracted the weirdest grifters psa don't bring a world's fair to your city right we ended up with hh holmes and a flat earth guy here the everly sisters had bigger plans than omaha and they had a capitalist vision they completed what we would now call market research and settled in chicago where corruption was queen and vice was vast I found an interview with an author named Carrot Abbott. She wrote a book called Sin in the Second City that I read for this. And she had to say prostitution was technically illegal at the turn of the last century, but it was also ubiquitous. Today's image of the drug-addled streetwalker trolling under the menacing glare of her pimp wasn't the norm back then. 
When the Everleys were in business, every city with a population of more than 100,000 had a bustling red light district where dope beings, pickpockets, and brawlers got their kicks next to lawyers, ministers, moguls, and, of course, politicians. Vice thrived with municipal indulgence. Brothels were considered a necessary evil. Prostitute kept, quote-unquote, respectable women safe from rape and the baser fantasies of their husbands. The progressive-era reformers challenged this way of thinking, which led to a major culture war. The Everleys were targeted because they were this gleaming, shining symbol of open and protected vice known around the world. I love the thought that if we didn't have prostitutes, that men are just going to rape and beat their wives. Yeah, that's an horrible thought. The other thing that is, when you were talking about they're leaving Omaha to come to Chicago, we think of, there's a relatively recent, like in the last 10 years, book by Peter Pomerantz called Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. And it talks about Russia. And it talks about how you can, there are certain vices, right? And there are certain industries that work because there's just a system in place that's, yes, we look away because it does this and does this. So I can very much see that Chicago would be an even better and more welcoming place in Omaha for a business of this sort. Exactly. And it, it was, yes, we look away and it's a bigger population. And yeah, and um, I had a thought about, oh, I also did, interestingly, just watch this week, Meet the Press has some sort of peacock thing that's like in-depth reports, but they're not that in-depth. Still hosted by Chuck Todd. But they had a thing about prostitution in, I want to say, Maryland, and how they're actually reforming it to not hold the prostitutes legally responsible. And hmm. like they had the uh, Cook County Sheriff on there and how what reforms you can take for prostitution. So it's just there still a conversation that we're having is what I'm pointing to. Now I got a book called Madams, Mayors, and Madmen by Norman Mark. And he wrote the finest brothel ever created was no accident. It was a result of careful painstaking research, the delicate application of quote, build a better mousetrap and quote technique of merchandising and the knowledge that the proprietors were the right people in the right place at the right time. I had to look up Build a Better Mousetrap because I hadn't heard that one. Have you heard it? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I figure, uh, just for anybody who doesn't know, it deals with innovation. Yeah. Yeah. I've, so the other thing that's interesting that from a business standpoint is the goal almost always in a business intuitively is Build the better mousetrap, build the more innovative thing, build the thing that works the best. I feel like when you're trying to build a pseudo illegal business that is, we look away, you should build the fourth best brothel because <laughs> the first three are going to get raided and yours is going to be like, oh, we're good. We're good. <laughs> we're making money. Everybody likes us, but look at that. Look at that shining example over there if you want to go raid that one. Like all tragedies hubris is the downfall correct and that's what's gonna happen here but good they, they if i ever want to do a brothel i'll make the fourth best yeah really anything there's nothing wrong with being like the fourth best anything you're still making money but you're not gonna have the 
the focus on you, the, the fuzz, I almost said. Low pressure, low stakes. So they come to Chicago in 1899. They purchase property. So it's basically two, three flats that are melded together. So it's a huge mansion. Yeah. And this is how it's described in the Tribune. Amid the grimier brothels of the levee, Chicago's notorious vice district, the Everly Club sparkled like one of Mina's many diamond pins. The Tribune described the 50-room mansion as the world's most richly furnished house of courtesans. Guests were entertained in opulent parlors, among them the Gold Room, which featured gold-rimmed fish bowls, gold spittoons, and a miniature gold piano, and the Chinese Room, where gentlemen could set off tiny firecrackers. Okay. Move over gold toilets. This gilded mansion would make Donald Trump blood. Yeah, they're they were sticking to some themes. Culturally appropriate, probably. I'm just given the time frame. But also for some reason I am getting this image of walking into something that also looks like the Chicago Athletic Club and is just deep and rich and has a lot of tones to it. And then all of a sudden you've got one room that's dark and then you got another room that's just all gold and then you got another room where some guy's just laying off a firecracker. It's wild. Yeah, there were all these parlors. They all had themes and they were all, a lot of them were culturally inappropriate, which tracks for the time. And it was deep, it was rich. It was almost, it was the trope of what you think of when you see a brothel. Yeah, it was almost set up Disney or Universal Studios, but for brothels, right? With themes. No, and, and all the ceilings had mirrors on them. Some people are into that. I've never, yeah, it's just, it was everything. I could, pages are written about this and I'm just using the Tribune to create the vibe. Also, they have a piano player named Vanderpool. That's gotta be a pseudonym. Nobody would name their Dutch kid. I we know. know we know this, but I love that it's Will Vanderpool in like 1900. Was it both? Were both the Vanderpools spelled the same? No, it's one. He just goes by. Oh, but they're both like Vander. Yeah, like P.R. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're spelled the same. I would, it'd been funnier if one was spelled differently than the other, but I'll, we take this again. I'm, I'm just going to go with it. We're going to make it up that he, his last name was really Vanderpool. But it was spelled, the pool was spelled some sort of Dutch way. And then much like what happened to my ancestors, they anglicized the last part. Yeah. yeah. Shout out. And so Mina is the face of the business. She is the, the social one. Ada is considered to be the brains. She does all the bookkeeping and interviews all the girls. And they're creating a different type of brothel. First of all, no pimps allowed. Good. Second, the workers keep most of their earnings, which means they're making around a hundred dollars a week. That, yeah, adjusted to inflation, that's not bad. Also, you're going to attract the best best workers and not have to deal with constantly hiring new people if you pay them well. Exactly. This is true to, this is true to any business. This can be true of prostitution as well. That's and not a business practice. It's a sound business practice. Like they, that's why it's fascinating and it's an interesting story because they really were onto something in their business model here. And because they're paying people more than they could make at any other job or any of the other brothels. And they also had 
And they're still getting a healthy cut. And we'll get into how much money they had at the end. Ooh. But, and they also allowed no drugs and like lots of self-care. They really also, not only did they pay their people well, but they really had them take care of themselves, like baths and stuff and... Doesn't mean you have repeat customers if you don't have fights, drugs, and people who don't bathe. Bingo! Bingo! The the club opened in on February 1st, 1900. And this is all happening in juxtaposition to what we would now call trafficking. Back then, they called it the white slave trade, though other ethnicities were also being pimped out. Yeah, that's it. Tough and dangerous set of words to throw out there, but yes. Yeah. Tightrope. And what we have is a knot of racism, sexism, and corruption. And again, that's a different episode, but I did not want to step over it. I will tell you that in the next step, one of the things they they do when they're studying this is teaser. It involves measuring skulls. Nay. Nothing goes wrong when phrenology is introduced. Oh, no, of course not. Now, back to the Everly sisters. The women also undergo the, the, the women who are, they're called butterflies. It's a, they call the harlots that work there. They're called butterflies. Yeah. Okay. And, and they undergo regular exams by a doctor to avoid transmission of STDs, namely syphilis. <laughs> Harder to treat back then. Very hard. Much harder to treat. Infamously, Al Capone. And they hire only the best women. In fact, one of their rules was, quote, we do not like amateurs, end quote. Interesting terminology. Yes. And they tutor the women so that they can converse with the chosen clientele. Mina would also say, Quote, don't forget entertaining most men at dinner or in any of our parlors is more tiring than what the girls lose their social standing over, end quote. This is from a mayor's, madam's mayors and madmen. Their girls were not a, quote, commodity with a market price like a pound of butter, end quote, Mina insisted. They were, quote, much more on the same level with people belonging to the professional class who accept fees for services rendered, end quote. Yeah. It's progressive in some ways. It's so interesting to have a conversation about the progressive tendencies of things that also are like both problematic. It's where we have a discussion about something that can be easily problematic and also oddly and specifically designed to be the best version of something that's problematic. Yes, that you have summed up and articulated how I've been thinking about this for the last two weeks. I have not been able to sum up how I feel about that. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, that that's the thing as we get older is that you just understand that there's so much nuance to a lot of things and that you that there's really mostly just shades of gray or in, in this time in Chicago history, it seems like everybody was like, yeah. yeah. And they hire the best chefs from all over the world. They've got a kitchen in there that's like a Pullman train. Who's bankrolling this thing? This is wild. They had made the, so when they started, 
by lore, they had inherited $35,000, which is how they started their brothel in Omaha. And then they doubled that. Gotcha. And again, when you're not paying taxes and you're dealing with something that inherently people are going to pay pretty good money for and want to keep quiet. Yeah, you're going to turn a profit. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's over the top opulent. The club has a meal schedule and breakfast is served at 2 p.m. Okay. Yeah. I guess if you're working in a brothel, that's getting a decent, getting a good night's sleep. Again, I got to harken back to my idea that you want to be the fourth best brothel in that you don't need to hire the best chefs. And I get what they were going for. They were going for, hey, if you're you're a high-priced clientele, and again, by the way, just describing the business prospects and principles of this is, again, problematic, but I want to just do it as an exercise. But the idea that you would have to do all these things so that you bring in the high-priced clientele because you're assuming the high-priced clientele is going to be the most stable, uh, the, the, the people that will be the least amount of issues, the things that will allow you to make the most money. But just the links said that they would have to go to to try and do this right like hire the best hire the best the best the best and and throwing and doubling down and tripling down on what the enterprise has to be again i'm just saying you could have just ran a pretty decent buffet and get the fourth best but this is pre-vegas we didn't know we didn't know we didn't know how people would be willing to just embrace mediocrity and think it's great yeah in fact, this is so Mina instructs the butterflies by saying, quote, you have the whole night before you and one $50 client is more desirable than five $10 ones. Less wear and tear, end quote. Ouch. I know. It's just, it's <laughs> work harder, I mean, not smarter. Does, yes, work harder, not smarter. Don't get, when you were talking about like a pound of butter or flesh, right? Don't get paid by the hour, but be paid for your worth, right? I think right. that's an example that's being used. It's something that we use today, but it's being used here in, in describing this. Wear and tear is aggressive, but it's not wrong. No, there's a bluntness about it. That's like, there's no... Yeah. One thing that I've gathered from Mina, who's most of the... We have most of her quotes. She was a, a no-nonsense person. She had no illusions that this was anything other than what it was. I'm just imagining also that while this is going on and they are trying to use the best practices at the time and try and be the most sensitive to the butterflies, which I'll, I'll also use to kind of keep with it and all of these things. Meanwhile, I'm in my back of my head, I'm just thinking, there's obviously the inverse, right? There's somebody who's running in. There's, yeah, but if you can get eight in, that's great. There's got to be the inverse oh. of this running in this town rampantly, too. It's just, like, yeah, if you can keep it to 15 minutes. That'd be great. There are, in fact, the vice, I, again, episode for another time, the vice report goes into how into very graphic retelling of get it for a nickel every 15 minutes. Can I ask a very Chicago-related question at this point in the podcast? Sure. Do you think this is, do you think they go to Chicago, not just because it's obviously densely populated at the time, right? That that part is obvious. But do they go there for the specific nature of there's a lot of different criming going on at the time? 
And you can probably expect that a blind eye has turned a little bit more in Chicago at this specific period of time. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll get into the, the lengths they go to have a blind eye turned in a moment. Yeah. Cause that's the thing. Payola and payoff is going to have to come yes. pretty soon in the story. It's the Chicago way. Of course. That's um, why I made a Russia comparison. Yes. Both cold. Payoffs. Back then, beer cost a nickel. But the club charged $12 for a bottle of bubbly. Dinner started at 50 a head, and that does not include companionship with a butterfly. Beer and liquor are not sold. $12 is a little over $350 by 2023 standards. And $50 is about $1,500. So you're not going twice a week. Oh, there are people that were spending like $2,000 a week there. The other thing that I don't think people realize about Chicago, and this will play into it in a little bit. We had Montgomery Ward, Sears, Marshall Fields. These were like the Jeff Bezos of the early 1900s. These are some of the richest people on the planet. Yeah, like other than like the railroad barons, these are people that are clearly banking at the time. Yeah. There is and a, the railroad barons just built a bunch of houses in Fort Rhode Island. Seems like the other people spent their money elsewhere. Yeah. So they, it was just, ba- it was a ridiculous amount of money and still, a, and also still a very young city for the most mm-hmm. part. It wasn't even a hundred years old. No, the pictures of Lakeshore Drive in 1900 are wild. Oh, the whole episode we did on Streeter and how Lakeshore Drive came to be is just crazy. It just, it was a completely different city. There's, and, a few big, there's a few big buildings, but you're also... Is that fucking Dune? <laughs> oh, crap. Yes. It's, yeah, it's, the way the city got formed is... It, it, and it's a credit to, and this is always a tension, is it, it's a credit to, particularly Lakeshore Drive, was the vision of a guy named Potter Palmer, who did Palmer House Hilton. And he had this vision for it, and he was filthy rich, and you'd never want to really cheer for the rich guys but then in this story the the lakeshore drive story potter palmer did the right thing the reason we have grant park is because aaron of aaron montgomery ward so it's really like i you, you want to be like eat the rich but chicago wouldn't look the way it looked if we didn't have the rich guys no that's always the push pull right and that's that's true for all the cities i've traveled to we've never mentioned how many like cities i've actually traveled to and i wrote about but that is one of the truisms usually is that there is usually a series of people who struck it rich, who were philanthropic or that there were, a, or one specific person that was philanthropic to an area that allowed those things to happen. Because usually, um, you know, sometimes private public publishers, but uh, um, public stuff never usually as effective as um, certain benefactors allowing things to happen. I feel like it's just, we've got to pay homage to that. Because right now, it's just also because you look at the billionaires now. And I don't see Elon Musk looking out looking out and having a vision for what the lakefront of Chicago could be. No, I think he's got more of a vision of building that thing they're trying to build in Saudi Arabia. That's just one long line of, it's a city that's 9 million people. And it's just a big cube. Probably. That seems like something he'd be lying to do. Yeah. yeah. No vision for what it could be. It's just like, where am I going to get mine? Or how am I going to make a bigger name for myself? Elon Something would look like a cyber truck, but also would you be greeted by Alex Jones and, and some nutraceuticals? Oh my God. Yes. 
Alex Jones, Andrew Tate. Oh my God, we're just describing hell. Yeah, I can do this. I can do the Stephen Colbert Tuck Buckford voice, which is close enough to Alex Jones, but I don't want to do it because then I'll lose my voice for this podcast. I don't want you to lose your voice, and I spend a Thank lot you. of time making fun of Alex Jones and my Alex Jones voice because I. Mm-hmm. So that's a whole different story. Okay, so yeah. he's back on Twitter. God. There's a who's just been posting out times that Alex Jones was wrong today. It's you know how Elon got mad when they started posting like where his jet was. Mm-hmm. I would just love that if there was an account that is just like more low rent because Alex Jones clearly doesn't have a private jet. So where is Alex Jones's F one fifty right now? Well, he has a tank. He had a tank that he had to sell. Yes, because of litigation. Don't you yeah. don't you find that such a relatable story for everyone when you have to sell your tank because of litigation for telling people the Sandy Hook was a hoax? We've all been there. Who hasn't been there? They go for Alex Jones. They can come for you. Yeah. Not Careful related. What you saying? Not related to anything. Well, related to this. Have you ever heard of the podcast Knowledge Fight? No, but I like these two words together. It's two comedians in Chicago. One listens to and prepares clips of Alex Jones's show and plays them for the other one who reacts. Oh, that's great. Especially for the other one, too, because then I feel like one of those people is getting to have way more fun because the one has to constantly like sift through Alex Jones content. And the other one can just have fun. And Dan, who does the sifting through the content, he also researches things. So you learn things. Dan, where... I believe in you. Yeah. I mean, I think they make jokes about it because they're like, yeah, they run Seltzer after the trial. And they're like, yeah, this is our life's work. Anyway, let's get back to the Emily sisters. So services cost $10, $25, or $50. And, but dudes who did not spend top dollar were blacklisted. Okay. So they felt like they had enough clients. They felt so like they, they had. Make, and there was a prestige to this. You wanted to be part of the club. That's what they were selling. That's what they were selling. In fact, back to Karen Abbott, who wrote Sin in the Second City, her interview, the Everly Club might be the only brothel in American history that enhanced rather than diminished a man's reputation. Clients reportedly boasted, I'm going to get Everlaid tonight, which helped popularize the phrase get laid. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. I like a good etymology. Yeah. And that, so that's where Get Laid came from. The Tribune points out that as a rule, newspaper, the news, newspeople were exempt from having to pay to go there. I don't think they were allowed to participate in the brothel part, but they could go for the dinner and the revelry. And to the point gotcha. where they got like an all access, like not all access, but they got a, an observation deck pass. Gotcha. Yes. And they point out that if the Tribune overnight clerks needed reporters, they called Calumet 412, which was the telephone number for the club. Interesting. Yeah. (laughs) There's a little byway there because you don't want a real phone number for a real illegitimate business. You don't want it to be a famous phone number for your, you might be right on this fourth best brothel idea. But we're not talking about, we can't tell you what the fourth best brothel was because they just made their money and got out. I feel like this story is heading towards something and I'm excited. 
Yes. So on either side, there was a brothel on either side of them too. And one of them, like, well, we'll get into some corporate es- corporate espionage in a little bit. <laughs> the levy was in the first ward, which was under the governance of Alderman Bathhouse John and Hinky Dink Kenna, who are considered to be among the top 10 most corrupt elected officials in Illinois. And that's saying something. That's of all time. Yeah. Wow. Some just the Babe Ruths of just criming in Chicago. Just a round of applause there. Also, can't be the given names, right? No. Those are I, names. Yeah. I, I can't. John, I want to say it's John Bolt, and I can't remember what Hinky Dink's first name is. Um, Wonderful, though. I just go by Bathhouse John and Hinky Dink because. Yeah, of course. I was looking on Twitter when we were having a city council meeting back in March, and all I, somebody wrote, Hinky Dink and Bathhouse John wouldn't have even done this. And I'm like, what the hell is going on in city council? And they actually had a, a coalition of corrupt aldermen. Of course. Like a caucus. Always form, always form a coalition. Yeah, always get a caucus of corruption. Yes. And Mina and Ada paid about $10,000 a year for their protection. Yeah. Which you saw was Which I'm assuming a number that just continued to rise as you become more prominent. And again, you are the first most popular or mm-hmm. most popular brothel. You then need the most protection. That is where it works. And it's also just worth noting that one of the reasons it got looked away is Bathhouse John and Hinky Dink were corrupt and, dare I even say, degenerate. But the first ward was a really big ward, and the mayor was dependent on them for winning elections. Um, the system. Like, they had a first ward ball, which was evidently just like an orgy. Yeah, again, I would just like to park him back again to when you talk about People say we are the most depraved we've ever been. I don't know a lot of places that just have outright orgy balls these days. I bet. Maybe I'm going to the wrong places <laughs> and I'm not a weir, but no. That part's Orange County. I don't know. I, I've heard, I don't even know if it's an orgy ball, but there's a, somebody was talking about a sex club in New York, which is, I think, the one that Jack Ryan made. What's his wife's name? Jack Ryan, who's running for senator, uh, Boston Public Lady Hall. Is it Jerry Hall? No. Anyway, Jack Ryan made his wife go there and then had to drop out and Obama became senator. Yeah, that sounds accurate. Isn't it fun sometimes when you look back at like scandals that would have occurred in the 90s and 2000s and then you realize like George Santos got to exist? That and like somebody said back in my day, or this is from knowledge fight back in my day, if a presidential hopeful peed on a Twitter spaces was Alex Jones and Andrew Tate, that would have been disqualifying. It would have actually made the news. Oh, it was the P tape everybody has been waiting for six years, <laughs> right? You know, the Vakes, Vakes P. I, I, credit, by the way, and I don't want to like give a lot of it credit to Vake because he's pretty much out of the race now. But credit to him for just being like, oh, yeah, I did that. Moving on. But, but I think that's the one interesting thing we've re- we've gotten to a place in politics, right? I'm diverging for a second is that we've gotten to a place now where you don't even you, you don't even say you didn't. You just go. Yeah, no, 
what are you going to do about it? Santos is like, yep, did all these things. But I always, the, the best part with Santos to me was always like the idea that he was going to uh, attract and inspire people because he was clearly a, you know, renowned college volleyball player. I know. <laughs> college and because some of his lies i went through listen to a podcast that went through his lies you're like why are you even lying about that like and then i was tempted to be one of the first people to procure a cameo from him for a couple people i I didn't because the dutch of me said 200 bucks just doesn't feel i could get disgraced referee tim donaghy for 40 dollars, and that seems like a better deal but but yeah yeah interesting Back to this. Mm-hmm. It, this is like my, when this is why I brought up t- Taylor for being too sexual. I think of Madonna in the 1980s, or, or when people talk about our once great cities. Think about the levy in their orgy ball. Yeah. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Uh, no, everything is cyclical, right? I'm sure to some extent Prohibition was probably... A response to the perceived depravity of the first 20 years of the 1900s. Yeah. The more I read, I understand why prohibition happened. Morphine used to be legal, too. Yeah. Coca-Cola started out as something other than a soft drink. Yes. It's crazy. So it was, it was the magic elixir. By the way, isn't it funny to think about all of the sodas that came about as being magic elixirs? And it could, like... And a time now where we're we're talking about like Wagovi and Exempic being like magic pills now and changing like GMP ones might change the world in the next three years. Back then it was, yeah, just this cocaine soda. And Pepsi is literally named correct me if I'm wrong, but it's named for being able to cure dyspepsia. I don't know about that, but it does I make sense. It could be. Listen, They're not I, rooted in some medical thing. Sprite's apparently supposed to be able to cure something. I did an episode about the history of Wrigley chewing gum. And oh, yeah. at one point in time, they were marketing to toddlers to help them with their teething pain. Just slap some sugar in there and you'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, and then we can go back to Alex Jones. Everybody was an Alex Jones back then. It was just much more legit. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You want to, you want to get into apothecaries and just people standing on a little box selling, selling wares back then. That hasn't changed one bit. We just do it more systematically. We use the internet for it. Um, absolutely. We call them supplements and crypto and silver and gold. A book to recommend for your audience if you want to get into the Sam Bateman Freed of it all is Number Go Up. Is the better the better versions? The Michael Lewis book is good, but Number Go Up is way funnier and way deeper about Sam Bankman Fried and FTX. Okay, because I heard that the Michael Lewis one, he got a little enamored with his subject. He had two years with him, got a little into it. The other one, Number Go Up, just really gets into kind of like there were two competing documentaries about American gladiators, and I liked the one that didn't have 
the access to them and went on a went on a roller coaster and that's what number go up is okay i will check it out because i'm fascinated by that story and i still don't understand crypto but nobody understands crypto even the people that do crypto that's the, uh, that's the secret of crypto club the, there's wrigley in 2023 patented the juicy verse a crypto no. met, meta, like I, I read it and no. I don't understand what the hell they're doing, but just, I thought you'd be, they have that. That's a thing that they're trying. I don't know if they're trying to make it. Happen. Of all the people that I think would like trademark the juicy verses does, I didn't think it'd be them. Good for them. Good for them. Now back to our innovators in the early 1900s, the neighboring brothels immediately lose business. And capitalism be doing its thing, so corporate espionage ensues. Mm -hmm. Historians call it envy, that they were jealous. I think that's a nice way of putting it. No, if you're losing your business, you're more than jealous. Yes. In 1905, Marshall Field Jr. somehow gets shot. The official story is it was an accident while he was cleaning his gun. Like a Dick Cheney situation? Yes. Some people speculate that journalism didn't get done because his father, the Jeff Bezos of the day, threatened to pull advertising. Yeah, that would seem like a strong possibility. Yeah, this is like. The official story is still, and I'm not going to get into all the different theories and who came out when, because it's a long story. That would make this podcast very long. And we're not talking about Marshall Field Jr. We're talking about the Everly sisters. But one of the theories is that he got shot at the brothel. And they just didn't want people to know he got shot at a brothel. And especially that brothel or any brothel. You don't want people getting shot at your brothel. Get right. for business. You also brothel don't. Business. You also don't want people knowing your son was shot in a brothel. A prominent son. Right. This would be like if Rick DeVos got shot in a brothel. Correct. Yeah. The deep cut of Grand Rapids. Yes. <laughs> the DeVos name is uh, pretty known now, so I think the listeners can figure it out. Correct. This is from Sin in the Second City, Madams, Ministers, and Playboys by Karen. The Marshall Field Jr. shooting was a seismic boom with aftershocks that rattled the Everly Club. The sisters would be hit from both sides, the law and the outlaws, two diametrically opposed groups who disdained them for precisely the same reason. The club was a gleaming symbol of the Levy District, shining too brightly on those who operated best in the dark. I mean, if you're the person profiting off the protection, you're still happy. But if you're losing business or or morality or a bunch of different reasons, yeah, you're, there's being things being pulled from a variety of different directions. Again, I have to insist on this. You do not want to be the best brothel in town. You know, you get a lot of attention. And so the madam next door, whose name was Vic Shaw, also a made up name, tried framing the Everly sisters for the murder of Marshall Field Jr. Oh, he died. He died. Oh, okay. Yeah. And she has Pony Moore, a self-described mayor of the Tenderloin, call uh, Nellie, who was a butterfly at the Everly House, telling her, offering her 20K 
if she would tell the cops that Mina shot Field. Yeah, 20K is a lot at that time. 20K is a lot. So Mina actually hears when Moore calls, when the the mayor of the Tenderloin calls, and uh, listens in on the call, knows about the plot, gets a beat cop because she's got protection, and thwarts the plot. Pony Moore's license is revoked. Because he also, he was also, he had a club, a, a bar, and was also probably a pimp. I can't remember specifically, but yeah. Again, everybody has a different competing interest here, right? Mm-hmm. And so again, especially when you have competing interests, you go after the most prominent place. That you That's a very good callback. Yes. So he gets his license revoked, and the sisters forgive Nellie. They forgive Butterfly Nellie, and this is from Sin in the Second City. She had a cohort, but she had a, a, a collaborating collaborator named Phyllis with her. Nellie, Phyllis and Nellie were both forgiven and welcomed back into the club. The Everleys had always believed in second second chances, having benefited from a few theirself, themselves. From a few themselves, besides. A madam had to expect a whore to be seasoned with a dash of liar and a sprinkle of thief. The job, after all, required flattering a man until his money became hers. If they took a hard line on all club rules all the time, the Everly butterfly would become an endangered species. That's well written, but also true. I mean, they really seem to embody the principle that most HR units don't get right, which is if you empower your team, no matter what that team is doing, you will then, I think their philosophy was definitely that we don't want to have to be out in the streets continually trying to hire new people. if We just have quality people already in house or in mansion in this case. And, and knowing that they're dealing, knowing like they know they're dealing with people. I loved it sprinkled with a dash of liar or, seasoned with a dash of liar and a sprinkle of thief trust is important when you are again doing a tightrope of running the best legitimate crime business <laughs> a few years later mina discovers that nelly has been embezzling money naturally so this is again from sinners in the second city so how did nelly thank her the little vixen nosed her way into Ada's bookkeeping system, mucked with the numbers so that the inmates were getting paid more than they actually earned. This time, when they caught her, Nellie was more defiant than sorry. Look at the exasperation. Yeah, nearly daring Mina to dismiss her. So M- Mina fires her. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. And eventually her body is Only gone. once. Yeah. Embezzle me twice. Yes. Yeah. And, and she... She threatened, I think she said, like, any other job, you'd be going to jail. But you can't really call the cops to say that one of your butterflies is embezzling from your illegal business. Exactly. Yeah. This is where any business of this sort in human history becomes tough. Because when you can't report things, people will find hold in any system, and especially this system. Going back to your idea with crypto, right? Crypto was designed to be a decentralized currency system. What it wound up becoming was a speculative stock. Mm-hmm. And- designed to take power away from governments and currency 
and try and create a better world and a better future. And eventually it just became a either a Ponzi scheme or a stock. Or a way for white nationalists to give each other money. Yeah, yeah, parts of that. Yeah, and there's been an interesting like how technology, like the two most prevalent ways to denounce any break in technology is that like it's being used like for the Silk Road or it's just being used for rampant crime. Or, or to say, it takes so much power and environmental resources to power this technology that we should never use it. It's the two most common tropes used to denounce technology. But you're not wrong. That, that is absolutely a way to do it. It's always, yeah, when somebody was like, pay me in crypto, I would always be like, yeah, I don't know. We should work together. Yeah, I'm just thinking because so Nick Fuentes got, let's say, I, I want to say he got like $200,000 in crypto from some French libertarian right at the end of 2020. And it just always, just always sticks with me. Eventually, Nellie's body is found in the Chicago River of an apparent suicide. Parent. Air quotes, but I have to say verbally. Yes. Um, there was a note. She had a note that makes it. Oh, there was a note. Okay, so yeah. it's totally on the up and up. Yeah. I'm going to assume in this story that more than one person has wound up in the Chicago River. Yes, this is the only one we're going to talk about, but yeah, probably. Okay. Yeah. This is, I've done other stories from this period of time, and there are people that just end up missing. Like, there's, there's a story about a young girl who accidentally died and drank chloroform in a nightclub in the levee. It's just, yeah. E. And, and remember, because this is also... You could move to the next city and start over again. So did they just disappear or are they dead? I don't know. Yeah, that's the the interesting thing. Right? So we're so obsessed as a culture with true crime podcasts and true crime in general, right? But right. we also are, there aren't as many crimes. If you look at the golden age of serial killers, and now you're going to be like, Jeff, why in the hell are you bringing up serial killers? But if you look at the golden age of serial killers, like 1960s, 1970s, right? It's pre-DNA. Uh -huh. Once we get to DNA, when you're in the early 1900s, um, pretty easy to skip out and evade law enforcement because this is pre-DNA. Pre this is pre-a lot of things that would pre-surveillance, pre-a lot of things that nobody's tracking your phone. And right. There's no cameras. There's no, there's no, especially if all these people are working under the table, there's not even tax records. These are all just, so it's why I'm so impressed if somebody pulls off like massive crime and somehow gets away with it, even for a brief amount of time now, in the, you know, in this millennium. Yeah, it's much more difficult. I, I can't find a good transition for what we're going to talk about next. So I'm it is just, a good trend. It's, I'm just going to read from Sin in the Second City. This is about a butterfly named Phyllis, which is a different Phyllis than Nellie's cohort. But when the harlot ventured out one afternoon and didn't report back come not nightfall, the madam suspected a serious problem. Another day passed with no sign of Phyllis, and then three more. The sisters' fears were confirmed through the levee grapevine. One of their star girls was sacked out in an opium den on Bed Bug Row, high out of her tiny mind, cavorting with a Chinese pimp. You never want your area to be called Bedbug Row. Bad marketing. That's not part of the levy. That's just like a whole different. Yeah, no. Yeah, the levy sounds way nicer than Bedbug Row. Bedbug Row. No, don't go there. And 
one of the VIP clients wants to experience the offerings of Susie Putang. Again, not a given name. Not a given name, but that's where Putang comes from. Oh, okay. Interesting. We're learning so many things. But he will not enter the establishments for which she works. It has to like go broker a deal with this other madam. But Susie ends up marrying the client that wanted her offerings. So that didn't last long. Gotcha. Uh, and I'm only including that just because we've got the genesis of so many things. Hmm. In 1910, Nathaniel Ford Moore, son of a railroad executive and heir to what became Nabisco, arrived mm. at the house. And he was also allegedly a morphine fiend. Okay. And Mina's, Mina's concerned that a butterfly named Katie was going to dose him. And then rob him because she had previously been a pickpocket. I'll actually, I'll just read what Sin in the Second City wrote. Watching him now, Mina wondered if he'd indulged in anything besides champagne. Earlier in the evening, a levy morphine salesman asked for a courtesan named Katie. The harlot spoke with the visitor in the alcove for a few hushed minutes and then proceeded to tail Nat Moore around levy parlors, hoping to entice him him upstairs. Katie, before becoming an Everly butterfly, had been a common pickpocket and thief, so adept at snatching watches and wallets that she could have done it full time. But she was beautiful and stately, possessing an eloquent grace that belied her trashy mouth and scheming mind. The club's clientele loved her. So, yeah. Yeah. So Mina's afraid that Katie's going to dose him. So she cuts off the more guy. Katie confronts her for being, quote, so damn suspicious, end quote, before storming off and going to Vic Shaw's place. Mm-hmm. So, so she goes to the brothel next door. You know, neighborly. Yeah. You want to you wanna be in a place where you feel like you can be you. Right. And after that, I lost my, okay. Don't you think also, because you're agreeing a truth, don't you think the more you do this, the more just you become? It's just the nature of being a human that if you are running a legitimate illegal business and you're constantly dealing with people who are pickpockets and coming up, you're just going to become more and more suspicious. I think you're going to become more and more suspicious. I think it's the cost of having the, legitimate illegal business you're dealing with people who are already not willing to work within the system right it becomes its own system right but you can't but it's a system that does not really have checks and balances or reporting so you you have to create your own system to protect yourself right yeah yeah i think that's well said nathaniel Leaves at two o'clock in the morning or whenever, and Mina puts him into a cab, but he doesn't go home. He goes to Vic Shaw's brothel. Yeah, because it seems like he was wanting to brothel, a brothel yeah. hard that night. Yeah, he, I, I want to say he's on a bit of a bender. Um, yeah. And he dies in the bed with the courtesans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 
the Everly's were correct in their assumption and were trying to protect the brand. Protect the brand and protect him. Again, you don't want people showing up dead at your legitimate illegal business. Right. Which Vic Shaw sees as an opportunity and plans on framing the Everly sisters by toss, tossing the body in their furnace. Oh. At the yes. Twist. But Katie alerts Mina. She tells Mina what's happening. Okay. And this is from Gangs of Chicago. Accompanied by a friend, Mina Everly hurried down the street and forced her way into Vic Shaw's place. And after considerable uproar, Madam Shaw finally admitted that young Moore had been found dead in the bed about a half an hour before dawn. Upon Mina Everly's insistence, the police were notified and the body of the young man was removed to his home on Lake Shore Drive. His, he had a fiance. His death was ruled heart failure. Okay. Which it probably was because I'm thinking champagne and morphine is pretty hard on the heart. Probably. We'll never know. We'll never know. Now, Prince Henry, who was the brother of the King of Prussia and the German Emperor, he visited the brothel. And this is what happens when you become well-known. Yes, there are dignitaries coming from all over the world. We'll get into that in a little bit. But Prince Henry comes. And the butterflies performed a dance dressed in fawn skins where they ripped a cloth bull to pieces. Apparently, this is supposed to be like a mythological sort of dance. Mina really liked it when they did performances. Suddenly, we're in the Van Trapp family singers. Mm -hmm. And you're just trying to elevate. You bring in fancy chefs. Now you're getting into entertainment. Dinner show. Dinner theater. Now... One of the girls was dancing on the table and accidentally kicked off her slipper, which then hit a wine glass. Which you don't really want to do when you're entertaining dignitaries. But another man at the table quickly picked up the shoe and drank wine from it. The very early version of the shoey. This is where it came from. Then all the men at the table removed one shoe from the lady near them and filled it with champagne and toasted. I feel like the Australians will argue that they invented it, but I, but who knows? This is where it became like a thing. Like in the movies, they would drink champagne out of shoes. That, yeah. Even uh, if Australians didn't invent it, I will credit Australians with proliferating the shoey. I think they proliferated the shoey because the shoey is really gross. Writing that is multiple times. What? I have done the shoey multiple times. Do you like it? No, but it's just sometimes just just like the namesake of this podcast. Sometimes you're just doing something for the story. Okay, I can get that. I can get that. The shoey is like the malort of Australia. The shoey is the malort of Australia. Okay. I've never really asked anybody in my life if they've done the shoey. So you're the first person that mentioned it to me. Multiple um, shoeys, usually while losing a bet. Okay. That, that tracks. Yeah. So that's where the shoey came from. Now, there were a lot of, this is also where the Crusaders are starting. There's 
ministers that are praying right outside of the Everly Club. There was an anti-cigarette crusader named Lucy Page Gaston. And she once shouted, your girls are going to hell. To which Mina inquired, what can I do? The activist responded, make them quit cigarettes, quit smoking cigarettes. I included that detail because I love the fact that there's an anti-cigarette crusader who's approaching a madam and she just wants him to quit smoking. There's so many different reasons why she could be professing you should go to hell. But it, in this case, it's the cigarettes, which is probably like the fourth guess that anybody would have. Also, very hard time to be an anti-cigarette crusader. I know. I know. Way ahead of their time. Way ahead of their So there's Chicagoans will know this. In Chicago, we've got the, we call them the, the state street evangelist. And if you're smoking a cigarette while you're walking by, he literally will be like, God, don't let no cigarette smokers into heaven. So Lucy Page Gaston was no, his no. spiritual ancestor of the State Street pre Preacher. I love that. By the way, just as a side, I love the Bill Burr line where he talks about heaven and hell. And he just he says, he's, have any of you died before? Oh, you haven't? Then I guess you don't know either. Oh, I love the arrogance of... I, I could do a whole theological rant on people thinking that they know if someone else's soul is saved, but I'm not going to. No, it's for another podcast, and we've got a very important story, and I am dying to know how this ends. All right. Eventually, the Everly sisters, like Elon Musk, made an error in judgment that would be their undoing in the form of print marketing. Oh, so this was their Twitter. Continue. Yeah. They created a brochure. They did a, a legit photo shoot and they created a brochure which boasted, quote, not extremely imposing edifice without. It is the most sumptuous place within. 2131 Dearborn Street, Chicago, has long been famed for its luxurious furnishings, famous paintings, statuary, and its elaborate and artistic decorations. One never feels the winter's chill or the summer's heat in this luxurious resort. Fortune indeed, with all its comforts of life surrounding them, are the members of the Everly Club. That sounds like a brochure for the villages, but continue. <laughs> and then, so this is what madams, mayors, and madmen, Mark Norman says, could uh, perhaps the people of the time could accept brothels only if they were unheated in the winter and broiling in the summer. The town had often overlooked sin if it, if a little suffering went along with it, but a heated, comfy whorehouse in the winter was too much. That's where they drew the line. That's where they found it unacceptable. Yeah. So they, I'm just thinking of the idea. Obviously, this is pre-dating like an Olin Mills portrait studio or something, but just the idea that you've got to get Photo shoots are not easy at that time. So right. you've got to get the person who's got the large setup that has to, the explosion flash, that everything takes a long time to do. You're setting that whole thing up. And again, point being made, the third and fourth and fifth best places are not putting their money into a brochure. Also, if you're the best and you're getting the clientele, why do you need to, if everybody knows who you are and you're getting dignitaries, why press your luck? Because the vice hubris. report was, they got a new mayor, hubris, oh. and the vice report was coming up and Mina thought she could elevate the levy. Ah, uh, so if they changed the narrative, 
then hopefully they could, but it worked in reverse. Gotcha. And it went out to addresses across the country, arguing that there are two things you must do when you're in Chicago. Visit the Union Stockyards and the Everly Club. Yeah, this is pre-Navy Pier, right? So Yeah, Yeah, pre-Navy Pier. Yeah. The Union Stockyards were a pretty, people don't realize this, they were a really big tourist attraction, especially back then. Yeah. And so this is, it's getting around. And we now have Mayor Harrison Jr. He had been the mayor at the beginning of our story, and then he wasn't mayor for a little bit. Now he's back as a mayor. And people were coming up to him from out of town at, you know, official city businesses and asking him about the Everly Club because they'd gotten the mailer. They're now creating a buzz, and they're talking about it like it's Disneyland. And now they're making this kind of mayor. Right. And then... It's rising to the level of, okay, come on now. I can't ignore this anymore. The Vice report had also, by the way come out by then and had been like destroy the levy and what harrison did is he went after some lower level like maybe like 10th rung joints Mm -hmm. because he doesn't want to lose bathhouse john and hinky dink but now you want to make it look like you're doing something but you don't want to affect people's business interests because again they need to be there to get you elected all this circle works yes but by this point in time the brochure or the mailer actually made it onto the mayor's desk. Oh. He could not ignore it, and he ordered the club to be shut down. I just want to point out that the chief of police's name was McWeeny. Okay. Given his, name. His given name, his last given his last name was McWeeny. And he he ordered the shut the, the club to be shut down. For whatever reason, it takes an additional 12 hours for McWeeny to give the order till it makes it to the local police station. So they have a 12-hour grace period, and they just party. They have a party until they get shut down. They, uh, and probably a grace period to clear out, too, if you... Yeah, yeah. They, have, they have millions in cash. The equivalent of, they have the equivalent of 10, 20 million by 2007 standards. Hmm. And not to mention all of their other assets, their jewelry. They apparently had 25,000 in IOUs. Okay. And you the gotta, again, trust if you're running up a tab at that establishment. Yes. <laughs> it's like a chair situation where you just, you're a regular. It's, and everybody knows your name. You're a regular. And by this point in time, Hinky Dink and Bathhouse John are having some protection come in from New York. Okay. The predecessor to one Mr. Al Capone. Yeah. The butterflies get offered jobs from all over the world. The sisters skedaddle to Europe. Yeah. They return months later and buy a place on the West side. They still have the brothel, but they buy a place on the West side. They were too recognizable. So they couldn't really go under the radar. The vice district is the vice. There's a grand jury called about the levy now. And they initially had hopes of a grand reopening. But when it becomes clear that is not an option, Mina starts to get pissed. Couldn't quit. Couldn't quit while they were ahead. Also, they've been paying by this point in time, they probably paid $150,000 to Hinky Dink and Bathhouse John who are M-I-A. Yeah. 
And she's trying to get like the other pimps are trying or I'm other proprietors are trying to shake her down as well. Like we can get you back in business for twenty thousand. So she writes a letter and delivers it to a judge with instructions to give it to the press once the siblings leave town. Okay. So it's like a dead man switch. Yeah. Now, the prosecutor who's convening the grand jury, I think he got privy to the contents. They're just shutting the levy down. Like, this, things are just going bye-bye right now. The sisters moved to Manhattan, mm-hmm. up the Upper West Side, Upper East Side, one of the Upper Sides. And they have everything from their brothel into their new house that they bought. Their, and they start a poetry group. Interesting side hustle. <laughs> they change their name yeah. and they start a poetry group. Mina dies in the 1940s. Ada sells everything, including the gold piano. Okay. And she dies in Charlottesville. In... Oh, God. I just, again, want to acknowledge this episode focuses on one fragment and it doesn't address the reformers or even the other brothels. And I we got into the challenging issues of this illegitimate business. What are your thoughts? Oh, so many thoughts. So like nothing gold can stay, right? Pun intended, but (laughs) you can't expect something like this to last forever. I, I think there's an interesting parallel right now as you head into 2024, which is there are people that will be very interested in who is in power will dictate now this this worked locally chicago but who is in power will dictate which kind of businesses run which kind of mergers and acquisitions can be had what kind of climate exists that allows you to do things that's that motivates people all the time it, cyclically i don't think there would ever be a situation in any city where this tends to run politically right there's a political end to this where it's whoever is the mayor whoever is crusading right or in this case, the mayor understood the idea that they needed certain things to stay elected. So they allow certain things to happen. The more you get involved in politics, you realize that you have to uh, be malleable to, to survive. And so you understand that. But as people come in, as people feel threatened, that there's just no way that a business, really like most businesses don't last that long. So what is this, like a 10, 10 year plus run? 10 year, 10. Yeah, and that's remarkable. And the idea that you were, I think what's remarkable about this story is how um, interestingly progressive in some ways, but also, but not, clearly not, right? But the idea that you can be grandiose and not want to fly under the radar, right? That's the interesting parallel to today's culture, right? That it works. Sometimes I harken back to like a PR adage, which is that you set the line, meaning that you set the bar of expectation for what someone is going to accept or not accept for you. Right. That's true for Trump. That's true for a lot of people. And that was, I think, was true in this situation where people accepted where they were, then they were able to push the envelope a little further and do this in a way that allowed them to succeed. The other thing that's interesting is this just reminds me of almost any story in human history, which is your thing doesn't work and you want to go try and do it again. Mm -hmm. You'll be bad. Everybody will be bad. 
people, the best example is currently people have already bought tickets for Firefest 2. I, yeah. I, I, oh my, I think I heard that. They bought pre-sale tickets for it and they don't know exactly where it is or what it is, but people want to be part of it. And the idea that the people that effed up the first version so bad are still the same people behind it again. Now, that's an interesting lesson in just pop culture as it exists today where you're like, yeah, I just want to be part of the shit show again. Yeah, uh, that, 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 the first in me is not going to pay that much money, but yes. Of <laughs> course. Again, I, that's why I like to see the 21 loss in a row Detroit Pistons because $14 lower roll seats. But where I'm really, what really fascinates me is just human nature, right? That we, so many things can change technologically, how we interact. The through line of this to me is that if we're good at something and it works, that we think we'll always be good at it and it will work again and again. And sometimes timing is everything. Sometimes timing and location is everything and something good cannot last forever. And you see so many examples of people chasing what used to work rather than what would have worked in the future. And I think there's an interesting sliding door moment where if the Everly sisters had shifted this a little bit differently or moved to a different city or didn't want to go do it in Chicago again or traveled, would this have worked out differently? But it seems like it worked out okay for them. They just quietly re retired. And that was it. You they know? had a very catch me if you can kind of thing. Yeah. And they never really had legal trouble. And I feel like, but it is interesting because it is wanting to get it back. Even if we got to go into the, the Twitter analogy, like Elon thinks he can fix Twitter some. No, I don't think. Well, no, I don't think Elon thinks. I will disagree. I don't think Elon thinks he can fix Twitter. I think Elon wanted to dismantle it in his own making. I think. I know I've always made this analogy that he was just like burning it down for the insurance money, but that's not really the point. There are some people, including a couple of the New York Times, that would argue that he actually bought it just so that he could have access to records so that he could do the Twitter tapes or the, and do a, a deep dive research into why there was censorship. I think he has gotten so myopically focused on censorship mm -hmm. that he wanted to make this his crusade. And so he didn't buy Twitter for any actual business reason. There's a great, oh, there's a great podcast and I am blanking on it right now about, about Twitter and I will, I'll set it to and I'll put, put it in the notes, but there's, there's like a six parter on okay. why he bought Twitter and it's really well done on why that whole scenario took place. But yeah, I find it fascinating to be honest with you, you could read a lot of business books. Or you could just read about the Everly sisters and probably learn more. This is what I, like, first of all, as I said, throughout my research, there's been this tension between people who are committing, they're actually, were committing to offering a good product, making the world a better place. And which is such a weird conversation we have given the nature of the product and the world. Right. Yes. But I look at that kind of like the tension between those and the, there's also tension between them and people thrusting their morality onto others. And I want to say it's what we saw with the sound of freedom. Like people were coming from a, 
I'm not getting into Ballard. I'm getting into the people who mm-hmm. watched it. They're coming from a good place, but then it comes to a point where I'm going to thrust my morality on people. God's children are not for sale. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Where, you know, what, like the tension between the reformers and also it's where sometimes people truly are trying to make the world a better place. And sometimes it's performatively trying to make the world a better place. So much in today's marketing is trying to make the world a better place. Like literally next to me right now, but Winners Take All by Ananja Rodas is a really good book about how we performatively just say, yeah, we're changing the world. We're donating a pair of socks or we're doing this or we're doing this or this idea is going to change the world. I think that for the Everly Sisters, that was part of just, that was part of the marketing and branding. I think there was probably a, just guessing, there probably was a genuine thought of, okay, we want to be protective and we want to create the best possible environment. But for the clientele also, they were trying to say, yeah, no, this is just a kinder, gentler place in the levee than the other ones. So that's why you would want to be here. So right. even when, if that was performative, it might've been correct in some ways. When I look at it, I look at it in modern day, because this is why I brought up Pizzagate, because on one hand, and, and the Sound of Freedom, and, and we're, we're going to circle this back to, to sex trafficking in a minute. You have the people who are like, you must protect our children. You must protect our children. And then you have the people who, when Prince Philip gets accused, defend Prince Philip because the girl was close enough to legal age. Or you have the people who defended Josh Duggar. And then the hypocrites clamoring around Andrew Tate. Yeah, Dicey Waters. Yeah. One of those spaces where you shouldn't have hot takes, really. You should just not talk her defends him. He just could. I think if we were alive... Your point, your point of the dichotomy of, on one hand, you're promoting all these things to protect kids, but then you're also protecting the person who probably may or may not allegedly not protect kids, right? Yeah. Yeah. And... and We all have hypocrisy, but that one's a little more obvious than the others. And, and yeah, so that was just my kind of my thought about it was like, because I don't want to come out... I'm sex work agnostic. Yeah, I, it just depends on a lot of factors, right? I, yeah, I would also say I am agnostic in that sense that it is not of my opinion to have an opinion, but I, I, I would say that it exists. And I think what the Everly sisters were attempting was to have a controlled, safer environment for that. But it comes back to a lot of ideas of, can you acknowledge uh, rather than trying to dismiss that something exists? Because a lot of errors in human history are just trying to turn a blind eye to the idea that something can't possibly exist. So therefore, we should just ignore it and not do something about it. And they were trying to actually protect other women from the Andrew Tates of the world. And also make a profit, but yes. And yeah, but make make a profit. No, I'm not. But yeah, but I, I think it started as a for-profit venture that also then became slightly more virtuous. Yes, as it went along, potentially. I don't know much about what they were doing in Omaha, like what they were like what they were looking at in Omaha and looking at the market, because it was like they really did pride themselves on not beating their girls. Yeah, no offense to Omaha, but that's probably a true statement any time in human history. People don't <laughs> quite know what's going on in Omaha. Omaha flies under the radar, but that is not a small city, by the way. It's a very large city. No, it, but it's funny. All right. If I had to rely on a 2008 Facebook to tell me my relationship status around this, it would be, it's complicated. 
Yeah, there are there. The subject matter is complicated. The business structure is complicated. The org chart is complicated. <laughs> HR is complicated. Accounting is complicated. They didn't have all kinds of software to to work with at the time. So these are all just handwritten led. These are handwritten ledgers, backdoor promises, hope hope payoffs, all these things, and somehow it lasted for ten plus years. So, not to say anything flippantly about what is going on or to take a stance on that, just to say kudos on running an effective business that is very true in Chicago. And very in a very competitive market. There were a hundred and one thousand twenty problems in the levy. That's a healthy that's a healthy <laughs> business market. And it also again why when things get shut down, it's because they get too big. Like FTX doesn't get shut down until it gets too big. That's why you have to be right now. I'm telling you. It has been a pleasure. Where can people find you? Oh my gosh. Find me in a bunch of different places. Barrel on LinkedIn. That's probably a good one. I'm not going to give out my ex. I've got a few people on there, but I'll keep just like the Everly sisters kept their, their mansion, but didn't use it. Uh how I. Oh, I approach X right now. It's barrel on there. You can also find the It's No Fluke podcast, which I do with the Shorty Awards every week, where we get to interview somebody really cool in, in creative content. Those are great places to find me. All right. And listeners, hit the subscribe button before someone dies in a brothel. Leave a five-star review like you are a patron of the Everly Club and tell all your friends. Tune in next week when Molly McAleer returns and we talk about a Christmas icon.